One Hope Church. You're here today. Um, we're going to continue in our study of the book of 2 Samuel. Um, if you want to go ahead and if you brought your Bible with you, be ready. 2 Samuel chapter 15 is where we'll pick up today. Um, I just do want to make um, a note that next Sunday is, is normally we celebrate um, Freedom Sunday um, as we talk about um, human trafficking, slavery around the world, and um, the gospel's power to combat um, that. Um, but this year, this next Sunday, we're going to continue on in our study of Second Samuel because we have um, October 27th is the Athaf uh, Marathon, and many of, we have people running um, that race to raise funds for the School for Girls um, in Tanzania. And so um, we're going to have our service at a different time on that day and celebrate um, our, our runners and what God does through that and the funds that are raised. Um, and we'll, so we'll have that theme um, on that Sunday. Um, so I just want to make everybody aware of that now um, as we continue in um, 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 15. And so last, last week we ended, you know, with Ab- Absalom had um, killed his brother um, because of what his brother had done to his sister. He killed his, it's his half-brother um, that he kills, and then he flees. And now he's been bought, brought back um, to Jerusalem. He's there for a couple of years without seeing his father, and then um, finally he, he sees his father and there is this scene of what appears to us to be um, you know, reconciliation, restoration. Um, but unfortunately that's not the whole story. And so we're going to continue with that uh, this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, we'll get right into it. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your love and your grace. We pray, God, that you would... Um, encourage us, that you would teach us from your word. Lord, thank, we're thankful that there are things to learn even from those who do um, terrible things and go against your ways, that even that is an example for us um, to be humble and to do what is right and not to be self-seeking, but to seek your glory and what is best uh, for all people and not just ourselves. And so, Father, we ask for your strength and for your help um, this morning, um, we know for, for many people it's been a difficult week or weekend, and we pray, God, that you would just encourage our hearts this morning as we have the privilege uh, to worship you together today. We thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So in chapter 15, it begins, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. 
And so it was, whenever ever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Um, and so we have in this scene, Absalom kind of, of taking advantage of a gap in justice. So it seems that during this period of time, um, there isn't a gap of justice. Some have concluded that perhaps for some of the, this period of time that Absalom is doing this, that um, David is perhaps sick or um, otherwise occupied and is not, um, his administration is not giving full attention to their duties. Because it does seem odd that at least that word would know back, get back to the king of like, here's what your, your son is, is doing and while it may appear on the outside to be noble, um, we can see that there's perhaps an ulterior motive here. Um, so he had this, you know, Absalom was very crafty. We saw that, you know, he, he waited um, and was patient uh, in the plot to kill his, his half-brother. He, he, he did not strike out immediately. He bided his time. He waited and then he executed his plan. In this case, we can see that he has had time and he has come up with another plan. So now that he has um, gotten in a position where he is free to be in the city and to kind of do what he wants to do, and he has resources available to him, he provided for himself chariots and horses, 50 men to run before him. So he has this you know, appearance, again, of, of prestige. Um, he's, he's wise in how he presents himself to the public. Um, and remember, the scriptures already told us about his amazing hair and his physique, that he's by far the most handsome person in, in the whole country. It's not a contest. It's not close. It's like if they're having an actual contest, it's Absalom, and then everybody else is, is fighting for second place, right? There's no competition for first place. He's already got that locked up. But then he does this thing. You see, he's even in his, um, his plot, he's a hard worker. It says he rises early and goes to the gate. You see, it's not just the righteous who are diligent in what they're doing. Oftentimes, those who have wicked motives are very diligent to execute those. And, and he, he goes and he's working hard and he does have this appearance of, you know, humility. Well, there's pride and humility, that combination. Because his pride is, you know, if I were the judge of the land, somebody would be here to hear your cause. His humility and then everybody comes and bows to him, you know, he picks them up and he, he kisses them. It's an, at least an appearance of humility. I think we can probably just most likely say it's, at this point, and appearance that all of his moves are calculated. So we have to remember that when you're dealing with somebody who is not um, right with God and who has a goal and a plan in mind, you can even things that appear to be good, you cannot take them on face value. You have to look deeper. Why is this person doing this and doing it this way? And there's a motivation 
that the person has. So when we see people in our, in our world, I think particularly, this is a lesson for us, particularly in the political realm, you say, yes, that appears to be good, but is there a motivation for that that is, that is different? Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if a thief gives $10 over here so they can steal $1,000 over there, you know, that's a calculated move. You don't just look at the 10 and go, bravo. You look at the whole picture, right? So um, that's what we have to be wise. I think this, this passage calls us to discernment and to be wise in, in how we view what is happening in our world. And so it says Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He is calculated. Verse 7 says, Now it came to pass, I'm going to say a certain period of time, because there's a, script, there's a manuscript um, issue there. A lot of it you will say 40. That, that doesn't seem logical or practical given the context. We have, a, we have a known manuscript issue there, what that number should be, whether it should be 4 or some other number. I'm not exactly certain, but it's a it's much less period of time than I can feel confident in telling you it's not 40 years. That would be too long given the you know, age of, of David and the whole context of, of what's happening. Um, it, it came to pass that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to um, Hebron and pay the vow I have made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I, while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Okay. Now, why is Hebron important? Hebron, you know, that's where we had David anointed as king. It's like it's known to be this, you know, it's, it's like a king-making place. But it's also a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. And so Absalom, you know, notice how he says, it says this, you know, please let me go. Why? He's going to use God, because I have a vow to play for the Lord, you know, because when I was in, you know, when he was um, on the hiding out, um, with his um, maternal grandparents in Syria while he you know, waited for things to calm down after he had killed his half-brother, he says he made this vow. Now, did he really make a vow there? Probably not. Did he really have an intention, then I will serve the Lord? Well, his actions, you know, when we look, we're going to look at the whole story, we see you know, this, is, this is what we call talking a good game. But to, to manipulate people, and, and we have to recognize this, that people will always use religion to manipulate others. And people will even use the name of the true and living God to manipulate others. People will even use the name of Jesus to manipulate others. We have to be, again, very wise and discerning and careful that we do not fall into to the same sort of deceit and traps by those who would use the name of God in order to, to get something from us. Um, you know, and and you know, we have illustrations I don't have to use with God. It's kind of like, you know, you get phone calls sometimes. You get asked to give money, you know, to police officers or, you know, to firemen. And that sounds 
noble and you know you're going to give your your 10 or your 20 dollars you know and, and you're going to feel good that you're supporting them but the organization that's doing it gives like one or two percent and they're keeping the other 98 for themselves but they're telling you your money is going to support firemen well who in our community you know what i don't want to support firemen you know of course we always want to support firemen but that, that's used again as a manipulative tool and so there's all sorts of things we have to remember that apart from jesus you know apart from a relationship with the true and living god the hearts of men and women are set on wickedness and deceit and and doing what is best for oneself and you know self-preservation and self-gain that that is the natural bent now because of the influence of of god and of you know of of what is is good you know there people obviously um go to to less degrees and in comparatively speaking you know we may view people as like quote-unquote good people all the way to everybody acknowledges that's a, a wretched person um but when it comes down to it apart from god i mean what does the scripture tell us about the heart of humans you know, again, we, all, we always want to assume good, but that's foolish to assume good. I hate to say that, but our, the historical record gives us so much evidence that you cannot assume good. The, the, most you could, the, the, the most charitable you could be is neutral and to seek discernment and wisdom. Lord brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Well, it sounds so noble, doesn't it? I will serve the Lord. Then the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. And they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So here Absalom has you know, spies, he has people who know the conspiracy. He has a group that he's brought that don't know the conspiracy but are going to kind of get wrapped up in this thing. And then he calls for Ahithophel, which is Dave, one of David's counselors. Now when Ahithophel goes, um, we believe that he, he fully understand what he was going into. He fully understand the plot and had reason to believe that it would succeed because he's going to throw his lot you know, 100% in with Absalom. And if he, if he didn't think that, he would have left um, at, at any time once he realized what was happening. But the fact that he stays, we know um, he, was, he was in it. Um, he was part of this conspiracy. Ver, verse 13, Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. 
or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gideites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said, this is David said to Idiot the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. And in fact, you only came yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I do not know where, since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Idiot answered, the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant shall be. So David said to Idiot, Go and cross over. Then Idiot the Gittite and his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And the country wept with a loud voice, and the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the book Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful scene that we have there as we see Absalom uh, you know, is the threat and David says, hey, this is a real threat. This is not a, you're kind of like, this is not a drill. This is not a drill. We're, we're out of here. You know, we got to go. We got to flee um, to safety while we can. And it's interesting that um, this man, Itai, or how you say his name, but he, he had just gotten there, but he had already made a decision. You know, he left um, his place. Um, he left from, from Gath, from you know, the territory of, of the Philistines, and he has set, uh, he has determined a course for himself, and those who followed him have agreed with that course that they're going to go with the Lord and with David, regardless of what that means. And then, you know, they get there, and then the next day, David is running out of the city to flee. And he's got another decision to, like, this is where, do I, am I really fully going with this decision? And this reminds us um, of the parable that Jesus gives with the seed um, it's the seed is the gospel um, and the soils, the different you know, hearts, types of hearts of, of people. And the seed is cast. And of those four soils, you know, in that, in that parable that Jesus gives, all seem to be receptive. But for different reasons, you know, it doesn't take, except for, for the good soil. And I think that here, you know, in the face of persecution, there is proof that this man and those who were with him were good soil. Because when persecution came, when, when opposition came, when difficulty came, they didn't shrink back. Now, and, and this is a big problem, you see, because what if, 
Idiot had had this mindset that he believed this sort of message that said, you know what, if you follow the true and living God, if you follow Yahweh and, and with his people, like, your life is just going to be, you know, it's going to be bunches of grapes and fresh bread and flowing honey and they're not going to be any problem. You're going to have, you know, just a life of, of a tranquil life of peace. <laughs> What if that is the, the message he believed and then this happened? What would he do? He'd probably shrink back. See, but he didn't put qualifiers on God. And this is what a lot of people do when they hear about Jesus and they hear about forgiveness and no message is good, but they put qualifiers on God and it's a qualifier of, yes, I will follow you if up until... You know, as long as my life is good and easier than it was before. But that's not the gospel. It's never been the gospel. We need to make sure that we tell people it is likely that your life will have, like some things in your life are, are going to be much better. Like you're going to avoid the pains of just your sin that you brought pain onto yourself because of how you disobey God. Like, in that way, your life is going to be better, it's going to be more joyful, it's going to be easier. But in a different way, when you are going to experience pressures and difficulties that you've never had to experience before, and in that way, your life is actually going to be much harder. Your life is going to be more difficult and you need to know that you are this is this is not you know believing in Jesus is not something that just automatically makes life smooth for you it's that, that's not, if you if that's what you're expecting you're you're well, one you're looking for something you're never going to find but two you're looking for something that Jesus never promises he actually promises difficulty. And he promises that he will be there with you through that difficulty. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been promised difficulty. That's a guarantee. Like, I can't guarantee a lot of things, but if you follow Jesus, I can guarantee you're going to have to go through some hard things. Well, that's lovely, right? You're like, thanks. Thanks for that. But people need to know that. I think that's why we have such, you know, so many people who claim to follow Jesus and then leave. Because they don't, they, they, they don't understand what following Jesus actually entails. <laughs> and we have so many people preaching gospels that are not the gospel. And so people are, are buying a version and it has the name of, just like Absalom uses the name of God, it has the name of God, but without the reality of God. And that comes in all different forms, shapes and forms. And we have to be careful about that. The reality is you're going to, you, you know, when you preach this sort of, of truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it, 
you're going to have fewer people adhere to that, but those who adhere to it will be genuine. Well, we'd rather be genuine than a large crowd of people who don't really understand what they're doing. But he says, Iria says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely whatever my place, my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. This reminds us, you know, of the, um, the words of, of Ruth to her mother-in-law. Your God will be my God and where you go, I will go. And again, and, and she was a Moabite. And again, you know, we need to be careful with this narrative. Oh, in the Old Testament, you know, God had his people Israel and he doesn't accept people from other places. And so, you know, it's this narrow thing and, you know, that's blah, 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 blah. No, hey, no, look at the details of the scripture. God is willing to accept the heart of any person from any place who genuinely wants to follow him. And while there may be general judgment towards a group of people at a particular time for their exceeding wickedness, there are always, always the individual has the ability to repent and to be right with God. Always the individual has a decision to make. And we... They just didn't have any shot. We also need to make sure that we, we fulfill our responsibility to give everyone the best opportunity that they can have, which is to hear the gospel clearly explained to them. Verse 24, There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God, and Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Ahimeaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abathar, see you all will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Now that part I, f- I find fascinating and, and really powerful, because here we see God, uh, David understands that all that's happening is still the judgment of God on his life for the sins that he has committed. And so at this point, he's content. You know, if God will, will find favor with me, he will bring me back to Jerusalem. God's going to, and he trusted God's going to take care of his ark. God's going to take care of his, of, of what's his. 
um, as much as God wants to. That's all up to God. And so if he brings me back or not, let him do as seems good to me. You know, I think we need to remember that with the church. It's the Lord's church. We need to have it in his hands. We're not trying to control everything, but that we trust him. And we need to remember um, that God is powerful and that God works. And so with confidence, David sends the ark of God back into Jerusalem. And he sends the priest back as well. And there, you know, he has a clear vision for the difference between his duties and the duties of the priests. Who he is as king and who the priests are. You know, and that's again an important distinction because that was one of the problems um, that Saul had. Saul crossed that line between his role as priest and uh, his role as king and what the priest's role was. It's one of the reasons he was no longer king, why God removed him from that place. And so David, here we see an under, he has an understanding and he stays in his lane, which also is important. Stay in your lane. Verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up and he had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come unto the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushiah the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar the priest with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abathar the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz Zadok's son and Jonathan Abathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. And so in, in this scene, you know, we see the, the sadness we see the mourning that they have, and, and there is certainly in life, there are times, folks, there are times to mourn. There's a time um, to celebrate, and there is a time to mourn. And this was a time for mourning. And, you know, this is when David learns that Ahithophel, you know, is a conspirator um, with Absalom, um, someone that had given him advice before, and now he prays that God would turn that av- advice into foolishness, that foolish advice would be given to Absalom. And he sends Hushai back to help um, accomplish that. Hushai was one of his key advisors. And, but he noticed, he says this, if you go on with me, then you'll become a burden to me. It, it lends us to believe that either, either Hushai had you know, some, some sort of difficulty. Perhaps he's just 
you know, older and he's going to move slower. <laughs> you know, perhaps it's something, you know, just that simple. Um, but David sees it as you can do more good for me in the city than you can for me out here in the wilderness. And Hushia being um, an ally of David and being a faithful friend um, just does what he's asked. He doesn't try to turn it around or complain or... Um, and he takes on for himself risk. Here's the reality. Um, everyone who's on the Lord's side in this, everyone who's on David's side in terms of what is right and just, you know, they have to take risk. And the way things appear at this time, you could argue, well, the people, you know, Absalom and his people are taking risks too. Yes, that is true. Whenever there's a conspiracy to overthrow, those who conspire, you know, risk their lives, you know, to do so. But people are still putting their lot in, you know, there's a temptation at least to put one's lot in where you think the most success will be. Is David more likely to win this, or is Absalom more likely to win this? And based on the information we're given at this point, it seems more likely that Absalom is going to win this. He has the majority of people. Um, he has the majority of power. Uh, he has momentum on his side. David is the one who's already rushed out and left the city. So if you're just going on who you think is going to win, well... Absalom will be the side to go on. But again, and, and, and we understand, you know, we have the benefit of having the entire word of God. So we know Jesus has won, and we know that, that victory is fulfilled in his. So for us, that's not a difficult decision in terms of big picture if we believe what the Bible says. We know we're on the side of victory. But the question comes up in the much smaller battles. In the much smaller battles in your classroom, at your place of work, on the basketball court, wherever it is, when there are those small battles between right and wrong and, and what side you're going to stand on, it can appear to us at times, well, this side's going to win, and if I go with the other side, even though the other side is on the right side, I'm going to get slaughtered. So what do you do then? See, we get big picture. The difficult thing for us isn't the big picture, it's the smaller things of life. And that's where we have to be willing, in situation X, to be on the side of what is right and true, I'm willing to be slaughtered. Understanding God has us, we're good in the big picture. And that should give us the confidence, folks. That should give us the confidence to be willing to take those relatively small risks. And when I say relatively small risk, I mean relatively small, including up unto your own you know, personal death. Bigger risks would be the risking the death of those who you feel responsible to take care of. We get that, right? Like, especially as a, you know, talking to husbands, risk, risking your life is much smaller than mis- risking the life of your wife much smaller than risking the life of your children. Those are big risks. We, we still put those in the casual big risks. Your personal life, that's a smaller risk. It's a big one, but it's definitely smaller than that. And everything else beyond, beyond that is significantly smaller. And all of those are relatively small risks 
in relation to the security that we have in Jesus our King and in eternity versus the limited life that we have here, even if you were like John and lived to a ripe old age. I mean, if you get to live to be a hundred, folks, it's like a firework. You light the fuse, it goes up in the air, you see it, it explodes, it's beautiful, it's done. Like, even if you live to a hundred, I mean, I was reminded of that, you know, this week with 9-11. And thinking about how many years ago that was. Now, those of us who are old enough, we remember exactly where we were in every detail. But the years since then, like the snap of somebody's fingers, so fast, so fast. And folks, our lives is not as long as sometimes we're, we are led to believe. They are short. The scripture tells us they're like grass that springs up and is burned out by the afternoon sun. Our lives are short. We, but the reality is, you can still do a lot in 24 hours. Still do a lot in 24 hours. You know, we need to make our days count. You know, so whether you make it count or not, you know, when you look back on it in the decades, it's going to be, wow, that was fast. But we also want to be said, yeah, it was fast, but you know we made our days count. We wouldn't be honestly able to say, yeah, we made our days count. Well, how do we make our days count? Well, we make our days count by worshiping the true and living God. We make our days count by growing in his word. We make our days count by praying. We make our days count by sharing the gospel. We make our days count by doing our work well. We make our days count by making a difference in our communities, by trying to help people who are in need around the world first need the gospel, then all the others. We make our lives count by doing well with what God has entrusted us with. We still make our lives count. The brevity of them does not determine their worth. It's how we use them. But folks, life is short, and so remember that when you are in a position of conflict and where it's easier to either walk away letting injustice go unchecked or to just side with the wrong side for the sake of expediency. Remember, your life is short. I need to remember my life is short and when I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to have regret that I didn't have the guts in Jesus to stand up and do what was right. That's a regret that we don't want to have. So let's make sure we make our decisions. And like Idiah and Hushiah, we put our um, 
we take our stand where we need to. It says, Absalom came into Jerusalem. Psalm chapter 3, in relation to this, David writes, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. And I laid down and slept, and I awake, awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Can I read that line again? I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves around against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people. Selah. I want to move into chapter 16 just um, quickly. Today, um, chapter 16, the beginning of this, this is a sad scene, and, and this is going to be part A of this scene, and we'll have to look in the future at part B of this. But it says, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, remember him from chapter 9, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here all that belongs to Meshibbethes is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I might find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Now that's a difficult scene for us to read, considering what we had in, God, in David's blessing to us and the example that is you know from chapter 9 I would just encourage us to reserve judgment there's more to this story okay so let's not judge Mephibosheth or Ziba yet let's wait and see okay um, and there's a lesson here for us as well when somebody comes to you and says X happened with this other person well that other person has a story too and when you only hear one side of the story, right now, we, we are, you know, if you just read this, you can be kind of ticked off. Mephibosheth, you were given a wonderful blessing, and now you go and do this? But we need to be sure to hear from Mephibosheth's side of the story before we pass judgment. Now, so that's a lesson for us. That's a question to ask us. When somebody comes and says, you know, this person has done this to me and I need you on my side do you just accept what they've said or do you do due diligence you know and I mean that in a situation where you actually have the rightful position to either help you know mediate something 
or you know, say it's a situation at work and you're a boss and you have a responsibility over employees and one comes and says, you know, this other, this coworker, this other employee that's on the same level as I am did X to me. Do you go and, and rush to judgment and then do, you know, just based on what that person says or you do go find out the other person's side of the story first? You know, there's just a, a basic, you know, it's a basic lesson in, in leadership there. Here, because of the stress, I believe that David's under, he doesn't take the time to hear, well, I need to hear from Mephibosheth. He makes a judgment and says, all that's, you know, your, your master's is now yours. And here's the thing, because in this room, when I said, you know, do you, do you judge quickly or do you hear both sides? Well, it's easy in this context to always say, well, of course I would hear both sides. But what about when there's a lot of other pressures in life? Other things are happening, or you're in a very stressful situation in, in one area, and then you've got this other thing in the other area. Do you still have that um, patience and calmness of heart and willingness to wait and make a good decision? Because it's easy to say, you know, David rushed to judgment here and how terrible that is, but, um, you know, you, you haven't had to flee your kingdom. <laughs> so you don't know exactly what you would do in that situation, but what do you do in the situations that you're in that are stressful? That's a question. Make sure you make good, measured. You see, the, the tendency for us is to react emotionally and quickly when we need to take a deep breath and take a step back and say, all right, now let me see all the factors and the whole thing, and then we go from there. It's not natural, but I think it's something we can learn how to do. If we're determined, like we have to determine this is how I handle stressful situations. We have to decide and stick to a plan. Verse 5, just move forward quickly, just a few more minutes. Now, when King David came to Behurium, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimea, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people... And all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shimea said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. Now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zorah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who shall then say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life, and how much 
How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. And maybe that the Lord will look on my affliction, and the Lord will repay me good for this cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Another really interesting scene, you can kind of envision that, um, you know, going down and um, I, we're not going to take much time there, but just to notice, again, David's, David does have restraint in this time. He maybe just has some restraint because he's a little beat down, but also, you know, we wouldn't have been surprised in that scenario if somebody had been like somebody in power like David is, they're going, yeah, I might not be able to deal with Absalom right now, but I can deal with that guy. Somebody go take off his head. But that's not David's response or approach. Again, he's, you know, in this case, he is measured. He does have patience. And he's willing to let this one go. He's like, I understand you're angry. And in, in this case, it's really interesting. He, um, you know, he's not saying that everything, you know, this man speaks in things that are half true. Because David had done some things that are wrong. But taking Saul's kingdom wasn't wrong. He actually waited because he could have taken Saul out with his own hands. And he didn't. He waited until God just gave it to him. You know, so in that, you know, so when you're reading this from Shimei, you have to read there are certain things in here that are true because in the matter of, if he, if he had made it all of his accusations concerning Uriah the Hittite, it'd be tough to argue. But those aren't the arguments he's making. And so you have to take where the truth is and where it isn't in his statements. But David says, you know, basically perhaps if the Lord sees me handle this well, he'll have mercy on me. And there's something to be said for that, certainly. So let's finish, finish this chapter quickly. It says, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hishia the archetype, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushia said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! So, we have a little deceit there, you know, towards a good end, but it's there. So Absalom said to Hushia, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? So Hushia said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, who shall I serve? Shall I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So will I be in your presence. So again, we have, um, it's kind of ironic that Absalom has used the name of the Lord to deceit, to, to create great deceit, and now that's going to come back on him as Hushai uses you know, hey, whoever, whatever the Lord does, I'm, I'm here with, you know, here with whatever the Lord does. You know, so he uses that same type of reasoning back on to Absalom. But Absalom doesn't catch that. He just accepts it. But then in verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. 
Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as, as if, as if one had inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So Ahithophel always had a little bit too much power. David listened to him too much, apparently here it says at the end, but certainly Absalom. But now, you know, God answers David's prayer to turn the advice of Ahithophel to foolishness, because this is certainly a foolish thing to advise. Absalom is still 100% responsible for whether he takes that advice or rejects that advice. He can't say, well, Ahithophel told me to, therefore I'm okay. He's 100% responsible for his own actions. And what he does is awful. And what's wild here is that nobody, you know, Hushia is not going to say it because, again, he's there to thwart, big picture, thwart what Absalom is doing, so he's got to pick his battle. So he's not going to fight this battle. But this advice that is given, it's amazing that nobody stood up and said, you can't do that. That is abhorrent according to the law of Moses. That's against the law of Moses. You can't do that. Um, that's, you know, the case. So what, what happens, you know, here in this scene is, is obviously, you know, awful and terrible. It's in public. Again, it fulfills the prophetic judgment that was given that what um, the sin that David had committed in private would come back to him publicly. And this is about as far as you could get with that. Um, so that prophecy is fulfilled. And everyone who participates that in that is 100% responsible for their actions as they do that. But it's a, it's a horrible thing. Um, we are not given any information um, whether the concubine said, you know, we, we do this willingly because we believe Absalom is going to be the king and now we're, you know, that's where we want to be or not. We're, we, I think we'd just be guessing, you know, about that. Um, but irregardless, it's, it's awful. It's, there's no getting around that. It's a horrific sin and against what God had instructed, um, you know, the people. And it's clear um, in, in the law of Moses how, how wrong and how awful this action that, that Absalom takes is. Okay, so let there be no mistake, you know, about that. And if you had any inkling up until this point that Absalom was just trying to do what's best to the, for the nation because he saw his father as not giving justice to the people and as an ineffectual leader and that you know, he could lead the people into a, a better relationship with God, this throws that entire argument into the toilet and flushes it down. It's like, it's not, it doesn't exist. At this point, you see the real heart of Absalom has gone you know, we, you know, you could just say he's, he's gone to the dark side in that, in that sense. I mean, he's a classic character in that sense that somebody who you could argue that they had done something that was, had an appearance of nobility, but it, how that was done wasn't noble, and all of this you know, swings that pendulum to the other side Do you see the darkness 
in his heart. And it's a shame because it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. Um, it's a terrible thing. So that's where we are going to end um, this morning. But we just want to remember um, those lessons that even you know in these temporary battles that we have to fight um, on this earth where the outcome isn't certain, we know the big picture, what is certain, and Jesus and his return. So that should give us confidence to do well in those small battles of life that we, whether we want to or not, are, are placed in and, and we need to do well. And we also need to remember when people that are in leadership sin and do wrong, it has devastating effects for many others. For the, it, you know, it always has effects in one's family, but even if the, pers- if the person is powerful, it has effects um, that are devastating for many people. Um, but looking this week in the, the situation in, in Yemen, which hardly seems to make our news, where an entire nation of people are, are a large portion are already starving, and the, the nation is on the brink of disaster. Um, you know, it, it could result in the death of millions if there is not resolution. And it hardly makes our news as Saudi Arabia and, and Iran fight it out using this country to do so. Um, it's, it, it shows you the decisions that people make don't just affect themselves. The sin David committed affected the nation. The sin that Absalom committed affected the nation. And many people are going to suffer because of their actions. We all understand it's not fair, but fairness isn't the issue. You know, it's, it's reality, a reality that we have to deal with. That's the issue. And it's more and more reason why we need the gospel, because when people have the gospel, they do what is right. And if people, consistent, when people consistently do what is wrong, any claim to the gospel is a false claim. There's just an ongoing pattern that's contrary to the gospel. Well, that's just hollow words. People who've been transformed live differently. And we need to make that clear and make that known in our world. Because we have too much fake junk going on that's a distraction uh, for people. So, and, and we need to live in a way that there's no question. That there's no question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your goodness to us this morning. As we continue to worship you, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give you all praise and glory. We thank you. In your precious name. We pray, dear Jesus. Amen. Um, Sam's sister Shannon is here with us today. We're thankful. We're going to have our open time. Uh-